Can we stand for the reading, please? We're reading this morning from Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to her, that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid, says to the towns of Judah. Here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arms rules for him. See his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them that have young. Here hence the reading of God. It's been a tremendously encouraging service, especially to hear the report from Samaritan's Purse. Isn't God just amazing the way he continues to reach out to people? Just fantastic. Also really appreciated the, the music today, the Kron Trio. I haven't heard music that good since the uh, Laser Boys were in their prime. <laughs> Although they weren't quite as cute. <laughs> we are looking at Isaiah chapter 40 for the next three weeks, and today we're just going to go through the first 11 verses. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. We have been tremendously blessed and encouraged. We just give you all the glory and the honor for what you're doing, and uh, we just rejoice that you are a God who is able to do the impossible and uh, in some of the most difficult places. We just rejoice in that. And we rejoice that you can do whatever you want in our lives, even when we face the most difficult circumstances. So we rejoice, Lord, that we can look at your word and be encouraged today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite quotes is from an unknown source. Someone said, no one goes to the Grand Canyon because they want to improve their self-image. 
When you see it for the first time, it's a mind-altering experience because you immediately stop thinking about yourself. At the canyon, you're nobody important. It's not about you, it's about something far greater. Now I realize that having a positive self-image is a very important thing, especially in children. From about the age 12 to 20, I was tormented by a debilitating inferiority complex. So I know that having a positive self-image is healthy, but it's only up to a point. Because there comes a time for all believers to move beyond self-esteem to something far more important. There comes a time for an upgrade. Because our ego is parasitic and it will feed off positive self-esteem and spawn all kinds of unhealthy byproducts like overconfidence and superiority and pride and conceit and selfish ambition and racial prejudice and a sense of entitlement. We have to be very careful that our self-esteem doesn't go to seed. It's obvious that Donald Trump has become delirious through an overdose of self-esteem. And it's not a pretty thing to watch. I'll be the greatest president with the biggest wall and the best health care. No, the healthiest attitude, I think, is the one we find in Psalm 8, where David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? As David surveys the celestial chandeliers of the night sky, he's struck by a profound sense of insignificance. When I consider your heavens, what is man? In the vastness of an infinite universe, there's nothing impressive about that little speck that we call our sun, or that puny blue rock that's orbiting around it, or even less the little shepherd boy somewhere down there in the Judean hills. When I consider your heavens, what is man? We are so insignificant in and of ourselves, except for one thing. God, the creator, has a glorious plan for us. He goes on to say, you made man a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Because of God's purpose, there is a glorious purpose for our lives. And this small planet has become the most important and most interesting place in the entire universe. There's all these movies about abandoning the earth and re relocating to some hostile environment on some distant planetary desolation. Even our most renowned scientist, Stephen Hawking, has recommended an escape from planet Earth. Well, that's insane, because this is where the action is. This is where we can have the most exciting, most meaningful relationship with God. This is ground zero for glory. And don't forget, we once had a royal visit from the King of Kings who plans a return one day. And that return will be to one of the planets in our solar system. I'm not quite sure which one he's decided on yet. No, this is a very special place. And we are the executive directors. We 
have things that uh, the Bible says here, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. We have authority. We have dominion over these things. And that's not something we're entitled to. We are so unworthy. We are not only insignificant, we are also utterly unworthy. But yet we are not worthless. Because our market value, adjusted for inflation, is not determined by our net worth or by how many bowling trophies we have, our Nobel Prizes we've collected, or how many Facebook friends we have, how many follow us on Twitter, how many likes our latest selfie got. Our true value is determined by one thing, and that's what happened on the cross, where Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for us, his life for our life. And he didn't consider that payment to be overpriced. That's mind-boggling. So the healthiest attitude is one that recognizes that we are totally insignificant, but because of God we have become extremely important. And that we are utterly unworthy, but because of God we are definitely not worthless. We are valuable beyond calculation. Insignificant, but important. Unworthy, but not worthless. And that realization allows us to move beyond self-esteem to something far more important. God-esteem. And that's the word we need to add to the title of this sermon series. This series is all about improving our God-esteem. Isaiah 40 is especially relevant to anyone who wants to upgrade their understanding of God. The book of Isaiah is kind of like the Grand Canyon of the Old Testament. There's a lot of weathering and erosion in Isaiah. And chapter 40 is one of the most spectacular viewpoints. But it's interesting that the chapter that talks about God's majesty actually begins with us and our problems, and our struggles. Verse 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, and that her sins are paid for. The Hebrews made a terrible mistake. Back in the days of Isaiah, they had underestimated God, and overestimated themselves. Their God esteem was declining rapidly. And a future generation would face the consequences of that when the Babylonian army would conquer them. So he's writing to that generation. Disobedience always moves us towards Judgment Day. And the Hebrews thought it would never happen until they saw the Babylonian army appear on the horizon and by then it was too late. And what took place was worse than the, the zombie apocalypse. Because zombies, as you know, walk in slow motion while the Babylonians were fast and furious. And by the time it was over, Jerusalem's walls were destroyed, the royal palace was demolished, the holy temple was desecrated, and the survivors were deported. A disaster of this magnitude usually eradicated an entire culture. It, they should have become extinct. That's what happened to the Philistines and the Hittites and even the Babylonians. That's why Babylon does not have an embassy in Ottawa or a seat on the United Nations. But thank God the Jews are still with us, and so is their culture. Why? 
Well, because God wasn't finished with them. It was more unbelievable than the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Defying all sociological parameters for survival, Judgment Day was not the end for Israel. In fact, God had an exit strategy for the exiles. He cleared the way and offered them safe passage through enemy territory. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be, be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. And the rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God was not finished with the Hebrews. Because it was through them that his glory would be revealed. At the time of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, it didn't seem like God's glory was very evident there. And that's how it is with our lives as well. When we look back on our lives, we can also see devastations. Whether it's the ruins of regret that are so desolate in our memory, or a troubling failure, a bitter disappointment, a heartbreaking grief. What do we do with all that debris that's accumulated over the years? Who is going to clean this up? Well, do you know that you have a God who has extensive experience in restoring the broken and healing the hopeless and transforming beauty into ashes? God was not finished with those people who had suffered so much when his judgment fell upon them. He still had a plan for them. And we're just going to fast forward to verse 11 where it says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young. This is a picture of God bringing the exiles back. It's like a shepherd leading a flock. He takes a special interest in the lambs who may not be able to keep up the pace. You see, God is not like a rich cattle rancher who impersonally manages his large herds through hired hands and has an I Love Alberta beef bumper sticker on his Cadillac. God's compassion is very personal. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. It's interesting that the chapter that celebrates God, God's greatness begins by focusing on his compassion. This verse tells us that the sovereign God is a hugger. Who would have thought? Maybe that's why he picked the Jews, because theirs is kind of a full contact faith. Not like us Anglo-Saxons, you know, where you get a polite handshake at a safe distance. You try to hug one of those and they go stiff. It's like they're paralyzed. You ever had that experience? I'm not talking about the Germans in this church. I'm talking about the ones in that other one over there. <laughs> Remember the prodigal? When he returned home, his father gave him a handshake and wiped his hand and said, now go take a bath. You smell like a pig pen. There's some leftovers in the fridge. No, it says the father ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. My favorite part of parenting was when our kids were young enough so that you could hold them in your arms for more than 1.8 seconds. 
1,001, 1,000, oh, they're gone. I enjoyed the hugs where they would just melt into your arms and their heads would be on your chest so that they could hear your heartbeat. I remember our sons competing to hug their mother. I get the head. No, I get the head. But later on, it's turned into catch and release. They were always squirming to get away because they thought of something better to do. How much time did you spend this past week in your father's arms? Have you listened to his heartbeat lately? How long before you start to squirm? Sorry, my, my iPhone is ringing. I got to get this. Thanks, God. It's been real, but I got to go. I'm late. Are you a squirmer? When we were first saved, God carried us like newborn lambs, close to his heart. But as we matured, we became more independent, more self-sufficient, more busy. And even when problems came, you know, we were often evasive. That's okay, God, I got this. It's all good. When was the last time you actually ran into his arms? That's why it's okay to be weak and helpless. We don't always have to be in control. It's okay to be overwhelmed, to be confused, as long as it leads you into your Father's arms. Maybe that's why Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Because God is waiting to hug you. So stop squirming. Be still and know that he is God. The one who loves you the most never fails. And all that he has planned to do, he will accomplish. And all of the disappointments and the failures and the grief of our life cannot stop that from happening because God is sovereign. Spend some time in his arms and just soak that in. Father, we thank you that uh, you are a compassionate God, that you are a God who longs to embrace us and we just want to uh, stop squirming all the time and enjoy that more. And now, Lord, as we come to your table, we just pray, too, that uh, this would be a time where we could just feel your arms around us, where we could listen to your heartbeat. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.